good morning, Gateway family. It's good to see all of you here this morning, and I want to invite you uh, to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, and we are in Acts chapter 20, and um, we're going to stand together, and we're going to read verses 17 through 38. Lauren's going to come, and she's going to read for us this morning, and um, let's commit this time to the Lord. Lauren? Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of, of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend to you, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are thankful for your ongoing kindness to us. Lord, we don't deserve to call you our Lord, yet you and your wisdom, your grace, pursued us, drew us to yourself, given us You've taken us and you've set us out of darkness to light. 
we are truly grateful. Now, as we come to your word, would you strengthen uh, those of us who are here with it? Or what we know not, would you teach us? Or what we are not, would you make us? And Lord, what we have not, would you give us? And Lord, allow me as your messenger to proclaim your truth so that your people will be built up in the faith. And Lord, strengthen to do your will. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, I think it was 2021 when I first trip Russia with one of my elders from my church again, Bill Spicer, and we went to teach about 60 would-be pastors who were going through a year-long kind of project of, of learning, kind of seminary learning, so to speak. And during those two weeks of hearts were knit together. Uh, we had a lot of fun together, learning about each other. We uh, sat around the tables and, and ate food together. Obviously, there was time in the classroom, and even in the middle of the winter, we went out and played soccer together. It's a wonderful time, but those two weeks came to an end. And as they did, Bill and I each took turns to really speak to the men one last time, to give them a charge, to give encouragement for the ministry that God had called them to. And friends, there wasn't a dry eye in the classroom. And they all followed us out of the room and to the car where we were going to get into and go to the train station. There was a lot of hugs, a lot of, um, a lot of smiles, uh, a lot of tears, and a lot of sadness that was going on. And we were all overcome with the daunting thought that we would likely never see each other again. It was really overwhelming. To, to pour out yourself for two weeks to, to brothers who loved the Lord and wanted to serve Him, and then to leave thinking we would never see them again. And as we drove away in the back seat of the car, Bill and I looked at each other, tears rolling down our faces, thankful for what we had done, but just amazed at the experience that God had given us. And friends, it's amazing how much love affection is often present, but not even mentioned between those who have been together, at least not in time, unless it's time to leave. <laughs> then you express those things. Then you share those things. Well, friends, this is what we have taking place here in our text. The apostle and shepherd realized that we see the Ephesian elders again he bears his heart full of affection and charges them to carry on the ministry for the sake of the gospel. He has lived his life among them, and now he is leaving a gospel legacy. For us, if there's an overarching theme, it would be this. Wherever God has placed you in the body of Christ, live your life for gospel legacy. Because don't just live it for yourself. Yes, you may be growing in Christ's likeness. You may be pursuing the Lord, but part of being a follower of Christ is to have an impact on others and to leave a legacy that the church will continue to grow. So wherever God has placed you in the body of Christ, live your life 
for gospel legacy. And we're going to see that Paul has done that. Impactful to these particular elders. Now notice the setting, verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. As he was on his journey toward Jerusalem, he stopped and paused as we heard last week. And now he's, he's asking the elders from Ephesus to come to him. He's not going to them, he's asking for them to come to him. And that whole process would have taken about four days and they come and what he wants to do is to give them a final charge. Now, friends, Paul's words are structured in such a way as to set a plate for the main attraction. You know what it's like. If I say to you, go to a restaurant, and, you, and you, you're talking to the waitress, and they say, what would you like? You don't say, well, I'd like the green beans, please. How about, you know, carrots? I'll take the carrots. You say, I want the steak. I want the prime rib. I want, I don't know, the chicken. You don't, you don't say, well, you know, oh man, I've been longing for that baked potato. It's there. It's good. You like it. But the main attraction is the steak. And so what we have happening here in this, in this last speech, so to speak, that Paul gives to these Ephesian elders are three themes or truths from his life that others already know about as the place setting for the main emphasis of his talk. And that is the charge that takes place in verses 28 through 33. So if you want to say it this way, the vegetables on the plate point to Paul living a gospel life. The ribeye steak points to Paul leaving a gospel legacy. Let's work those two points. Living gospel life so as to leave a gospel legacy. And there's three categories under this first section. Living a gospel life. Evidence now to the kind of life that Paul lived among them. We see his example, we'll see his priorities, and we'll see his integrity. Paul's ministry example, first of all, in verses 18 through 21. Here, the Apostle Paul lived an example of life and was faithful to preach the word while serving the Lord as an apostle. So notice, first of all, how he lived. There's some key words that, that are going on here. You yourselves know how I live, right? So this is not, he's not trying to convince them of something that they didn't know. They already know these things. You yourself know how we lived, how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So he first of all served the Lord with humility. He was not full of himself. He authoritative. He was clear. He was bold with the truth, but he served with humility. He was an example of someone who is submitting to the will of the Lord. He is a servant, a slave who listens and obeys his master. He served with tears. Caught this through this whole section, the, the, the tears and the affection that come out here. There were times certainly in Paul's ministry where there where, where was great sorrow, there was great distress, Primarily, likely, because of the unbelief of the proposed. 
But Paul truly cared about the people that he was ministering to. Whether that be in synagogues and homes or even in lecture halls, he was a man's man, but he was also God's man. And he served the Lord with endurance over and over and over again. Paul had to endure the opposition from the Jews in particular. He was beaten by a mob, left for dead. He, was, he had to escape out of the city. He was pursued by Jewish enemies time and time again. Paul knew that his ministry would involve this kind of affliction, this kind of suffering. He knew the Jews would oppose him. And the reason is because his gospel was undermining their traditions. But he endured those trials for the sake of gospel witness. Friends, that's his example. And notice also the fact that he taught the word. This is also part of his example, and he did it with great diligence. Look at verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Well, I tell you what, there are times when we as pastors get up before the congregation, we're like, I don't know if I want to say this. Why, Lord, do you have this passage in this text? I would just as soon, you know, talk about, you know, joy and happiness. But if we're going to be faithful... We're going to take people to all the scriptures, the hard portions, so that we can get down to the things that God wants for his people. I didn't shrink back. Notice the content of his words. All of God's word. He taught anything that was profitable. In verse 27, he describes his word ministry as declaring the whole counsel of God. So he didn't just focus on hammering a select set of scriptural nails in a text. His word ministry was comprehensive, full orb. Notice the location of his ministry, publicly and privately, right? In the synagogues and lecture halls and uh, and, and the Agora, in the center of the Greco-Roman cities, but also from house to house, in people's homes. Maybe there were house churches that were there. Paul's message and mode of life was consistent, whether in public meetings or in private gatherings. And then notice the audience for that word ministry. Specifically, it was the Jews, but generally speaking, it was also for the Gentiles, which means all the others, those who were not Jews. Whether they be philosophers or freeborn, freedmen, slaves, rich, poor, men and women, that didn't matter to Paul. He was taking the gospel to all. And you can just imagine the Apostle Paul on a Tuesday night gathered with the elders of Ephesus at their monthly elder meeting saying something like this, you know, how did the Sunday service go? Was everything in order? Were it, was the household of Alexander present? Is everything okay with them? What about Gaius and Aristarchus? Have they recovered from the riot, the beating they got? How about we pray for those who are coming to the daily afternoon teaching in the Hall of Tyrannus? I mean, you, you just see the pastor's heart of Paul on display in the things that he's saying here. They know what he's like. His example has impacted them. But secondly, notice Paul's ministry priority in verses 22. He reveals three priorities that drive his life. The first is to follow the Lord. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem. By the way, 
This is another one of those statements that just kind of gives this kind of this lingering shadow or reflection, you might want to say, of Christ, right? I mean, last we talked, we saw him healing a boy window, and now Paul's face is set toward Jerusalem. Hmm, sounds like someone else, doesn't it? But it, we're told here he's constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Paul is being constrained here. The idea of constraint has the basic idea of binding or tying something. And it's often used to describe And so in our text, it's used to describe the compulsion of the Holy Spirit that is driving Paul to go to Jerusalem. Paul has to go to Jerusalem. It's what God wants for him. He has to follow the Lord. He doesn't know exactly all the details that are going to take place there, but what he does know is that in every city, the Holy Spirit is testifying to him that there's a pr imprisonment and affliction that would be awaiting him. But Paul's been in prison before, hasn't he? And God has delivered him in a variety of different ways over and over and over again. He's been the, the one who's received afflictions. But they were all part of God's sovereign purpose to get him into places, to put him before certain people. And if we look forward in the book of Acts, we'll see that Paul's imprisonment in Jerusalem and ultimately in Rome would bring about his execution, but it would also put him before leaders like Felix and Festus. God works his sovereign will, and he calls each of his servants, not just Paul, but me and you, to follow his will, whatever that might look like. Not only does he follow the Lord, Secondly, he seeks to finish the race. He seeks to finish the race. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He didn't see his life as having any value except he was running the race that God has set out for him. And so he wants to stay on course in that race. He doesn't want to be distracted. He doesn't want to be disqualified. He wants to finish that race well because of the race or the journey that he has received from the Lord. So Paul's compelling priority is to finish the race that Jesus has called him to. And if that means trials, if that means suffering, that's okay. He understands because he's submissive to the Lord. He wants to finish the race. He, he wants to race, uh, run that race with single focus to, to obtain the prize, he says, 1 Corinthians 9. And what is the prize? Well, finishing that race as one who has been faithful to testify to the gospel of grace. See, this is his priority to follow the Lord, to finish the race. And the third, to be faithful with the word. Again, notice what he says. And now, behold, I know that none of you gone about the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you to this day, I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So this third priority here is to be faithful to the word of God. 
to not shrink back, to not kind of say, well, no, they, they're, they're not going to like that. They're not going to really want that. And friends, this is so important for anyone who is a pastor or elder to, to hold on to and to listen to. And too often a pastor can, can become single-focused, just riding a hobby horse all the time, or riding just a few passages of Scripture that they're just constantly referring to all the time. But friends, God's people need the full-orbed ministry of the Word. They need the theology and practical instructions of the epistles. They need uh, to see sin and obedience and the sovereignty of God at work and on display in the narratives. They need to learn to weep with Job. They need to learn to cry out with the, the writers of the Psalms. They need the thunder and the authority of the prophets and the wisdom of the Proverbs. They need to hear and see Jesus interacting with the people that he loves, expressing his compassion, caring for the needy, confronting the self-righteous, and training the disciples. All of that happening in the Gospels. And they need to be in awe of the Lord as he is regaled in the book of Revelation. We need that full picture of Christ. Friends, is following the Lord your priority? Are you committed to finishing the race God has called you to without distraction, without disqualification? As you follow the Lord, run the race, are you being faithful with the resources that God has given you? And friends, this speaks to our running the races of our marriages and our parenting and our discipleship and our gifts. Are we going to make God our priority in those places? Are we going to be faithful with His Word? The third general theme here is this. Paul's ministry integrity. And here we're jumping to the end of this passage, verses 33 through 35. And again, there are three really highlights to note here that he expresses during this, this speech. He says, first of all, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. In other words, I coveted nothing. He wasn't involved in ministry to gain things from people. He wasn't gravitating toward the wealth, looking for ways to benefit from their wealth. Paul didn't see people as a means towards his financial gain. Now, unfortunately, there is a terrible thing going on with the body of Christ today, isn't there, where there are so many men in leadership in a variety of churches who are all about getting as much from the people that are under them so that they can benefit. And they, they have money. And quite frankly, they promote the fact that if your pastor is rich and healthy, it means more likely by your faithfulness and giving, you're going to be blessed by God. You see the manipulation going on there. This is the lie, the terrible lie of the health, wealth, and prosperity crowd that preaches God wants you to be rich. And sadly, friends, this is what the world sees. This is what the world believes. Sometimes they hear, oh, you're a preacher, then you're after my money. I don't want to go to church. Why? Because they want my money. And it's like, look, as, as a church, we, as the members of the church, have to be faithful, but we're not trying to pull it from people that aren't part of the body of Christ. Look, Paul would have none of those things when it comes to his finance 
He was a man of integrity. Someone has said, you can tell a lot about the character of a person by looking at their checkbook. And Paul would have no problem with you looking at his wallet or to, or to seeing what is taking place in his bank account. He had nothing to hide. When it comes to money, he was a man of integrity. Secondly, he was in, a man of integrity when it comes to working hard. Or you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. All the Ephesian elders, they, they knew this. They understood that Paul was a hard worker and he provided for his own needs as well as for the needs that were, of those who were part of his team. He wasn't going to lay on that church for his, I want to say, his own keep. And if you remember, in Ephesus, Paul worked for Aquila and Priscilla in their tent-making business. So likely he got up in the morning early and he worked till about 10, 10.30. Then he made his way over to the hall of Ephesus and there from about 11 o'clock to 4 o'clock he taught the word and likely when he was done with that he went back to tent-making for a season to finish out the day. He was a hard worker. He had no problem working with his hands. Now we must not see this as a precedent that pastors must follow uh, his example in this sense. Some churches and denominations require their pastors to work secular jobs, using this passage as their pretext, but they are making the mistake of seeing Acts as prescriptive rather than descriptive. Because if you push that analogy too far, then you're going to have to ignore what Paul says in other portions of Scripture, right? In fact, when he's writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, I'll read verse 17 and following. It says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered of double honor, talking about finances here, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserve it, deserves his wages. So Paul is not setting an example of what all pastors should be and do. Quite frankly, most of the pastors in this country are bivocational. Many churches across the country cannot afford to hire a pastor. Gateway Bible Church is unique. You guys are gracious. You're giving. And we are able to even income from you. But I would not stop preaching because we didn't have money. That would continue on. There was a season when I wasn't in ministry, and I was still doing it. Why? Because it's the calling that God has put on the pastor. Paul was a man of integrity. He worked hard. Third, he was also, even as a man of integrity with his money and with his work, he was also a gracious giver. Now notice, verse 35, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than receive. And that's why and how Paul instructs the church in Corinth when he says, each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves what kind of giver? A cheerful giver. So when God blesses you financially, he gives you opportunity to give out of your abundance, the first fruits of the church, and then out 
uh, after that, giving to people who may have needs. It could be a missionary. It could be a certain project. It could be an individual who's going through some rough time. And the Holy Spirit will help guide you and direct you to the needs that are occurring around you in the body of Christ in particular. Friends, when was the last time you took some of your money after giving it to the church and said, God, even though I have been faithful to give to the church, which is my responsibility, the rest is still your money. Whom do you want me to bless this week? And then put your feet to the plank. Is that a habit that God has instilled in you? Do you look to give out of your abundance? This was Paul. <laughs> Not only was he providing for his own needs, he was also giving to those who were in need. He was a man of integrity. Now, all of this is pulling us to say, here's the example of Paul as he lived his life among the Ephesian people, in particular among the Ephesians in Ephesus. And friends, take a look at Paul's ministry commitment, these three things, and ask yourself the following questions. Number one, what kind of example am I being to others? To my spouse, to my children, to my friends, to my co-workers, to my fellow students, is my life an example of serving with tears and humility, trusting God's sovereignty when I'm going through trials? That by my example, it is Jesus through his breathe-out word that is driving my life? Can they see that? Is that your example? So what are the priorities that drive your life? Are they priorities that flow from your walk with God, or are they priorities that flow from being entangled with the world? Are you looking to finish the race without being distracted? Are you being watchful so that you're not disqualified from the race? Is walking through life looking at the world through the lens of Scripture and seeking to live out of a heart that is anchored in the Word, a reflection of you? See, these are the priorities that drive your life. Is your life, third, being lived with integrity? If we checked your internet history, would you be okay with that? If we checked your checkbook or your credit card accounts, would it reveal stuff that you wouldn't want people to see? If you were honest, do you do a lot more taking than receiving? Friends, these are, these are reasonable questions. Now, having said that, these same questions can be asked of the church, can't they? What is Gateway's example in our community or among other churches? Is it a good example? Is it a bad example? Why is that example there? What's going on? What are Gateway's ministry priorities? Do you know what we're about? And are we being faithful to do our best to reach for those goals? Are we a church and a people who prize integrity? Are we careful with the money that we receive? Do we spend it wisely for the sake of the gospel? Are, are we generous where we need to be? Are we accountable where we should be? Those are all important questions. And friends, do you see what Paul is saying here? Paul is saying living a gospel life is the place setting for leaving a gospel legacy. See, elders at Gateway, if, if we want 
to have an impact on God's church, we need to lay the necessary foundation of living our lives for the gospel, being models of Christ-like followers and leaders, being committed to Christ and his word, being men of integrity, men who are above reproach, not perfect, but men who are above reproach. Parents, if you want to impact your children to love and fear the Lord, then you will need to seek to live your life for the gospel. To seek to be a godly example, to keep the will of the Lord, the centrality of the word and the glory of Christ as your priority. And you'll need to live with and love your children with integrity. That means showing genuine affection and being humble and teachable. Friends, living a gospel life is necessary if you want to leave a gospel legacy. And that's what Paul is laying down. This is the vegetable on the plate, so to speak. He's yet to get to the ribeye steak. But friends, let's let's get our, our nice big knives right now. And let's cut into this wonderful juice that's ready for us, right? Leaving a gospel legacy. Paul's charge to the Ephesian elders to take the baton. Now, I'm privileged to have had two wonderful but imperfect parents who both loved and served the Lord wherever he took them. I have fond memories of my mother in particular because my mother, every morning when I would wake up, in my before Christ days, as I'm ready, getting ready for school, I would see her on the, the couch in the living room having her own personal time with the Lord. Sometimes she'd be singing, sometimes she'd be reading. There were often times when she was praying, and many times she was praying and weeping, and I would hear what she was praying, and she was praying for me as I was going out the door to be that rebellious teenager. You get that? But all those prayers when I heard them, just bounced around in my heart and my head. And I look back and I think, what a, what a privilege it has been to have had such a godly mother who prioritized those things and left that legacy for me. In her last day, she suffered with Alzheimer's and no longer recognized me, but she always had a sweet spirit about her. My father, on the other hand, had a sharp mind even to the day of his passing. He had worked for British Airways for 37 years, which meant that our family had lived in many countries, Israel, Germany, England, and then ultimately here in the States. And every place we would go to, my parents were involved, not just in a church, but in multiple churches and ministries. My dad saw the, the fact that they were in these places to, to, to get plugged in and to help really the cause of Christ. When my father retired from British Airways, he took a pastorate in Michigan and ultimately was in ministry for the next 25 years. Now, when he was dying, he was being kept alive by some drug. I don't know what it was, but in ICU, and and he was ready to go to heaven. He talked to the doctor and said, is this drug keeping me alive? And the doctor was like, yeah, if we stop the drug, you're going to die. And he says, I'm ready to go. And so he gathered all of children and grandchildren together. Now, we were in different spots, somewhere in Atlanta, somewhere here in California. And knowing that when the doctor stopped the medicine, that, that, um, that 45 minutes, within 45 minutes, he would be gone. And so he gathered them together, and, and he took each of our children 
and I handed the phone to my children, and my, my, my father spoke a blessing to them and gave them a charge. What, a, what an absolutely beautiful, wonderful thing. I mean, not every family or, or parent is able to do that. And I look back on that day with just, just great wonder and awe. Needless to say, it was a powerful moment, but a moment that was fueled for Christ and his gospel. And when he was done, we all said goodbye. The doctor stopped the drip of medicine, and 45 minutes later, he was in the presence of the Lord. Now, my mother and father were not perfect people by any means, but they had their hearts weathered pointed in the right direction, seeking to live their lives for the glory of Christ. And friends, there's something similar going on here in this passage, isn't there? Did you notice all the tears and, that were shed? Did you notice the physical embracing at the end? What we have here in these next few verses is a final charge given by the Apostle Paul to these Ephesian elders. It is Paul's shepherd's heart on display. Friends, what would you say at such a moment with these elders? What charge would you give a group of men, or in your case, women, who you, dis uh, who you discipled and trained to serve the Lord, and now that you were leaving... What words would you share to encourage them to press on for Christ and His glory? Just get the, the tone of what's going on here. This is not just some like rattling off information. This is, a, this is a pastor who's been laboring, who's ultimately saying goodbye. There are five main themes that Paul speaks to in these next few verses, verses 28 through 32, and each one adds to the weight of the elder's responsibility before the Lord. But these instructions are not just for elders. Don't think this is just for the, you know, the, the, the four of us that are elders. This is for all of us. We can all benefit from them and should pay attention to them by seeking to apply them to ourselves. Number one, or letter A, we find in verse 28, pay, pay to yourselves. Attend to yourselves. In, other, in order to press on for the Lord, we must pay attention to our own walk with God. Whether that means you're an elder, whether that means you're a Sunday school teacher, whether that means you're a mom or a dad, the best kind of dad you can be, the best kind of mom you can be is the kind of mom or dad who is paying attention to their own walk with the Lord. Now those certainly in spiritual leadership are to make their own pursuit of Christ-likeness, their goal, but it is something that is for all of us. It means placing ourselves in the channels of, of God's uh, uh, of grace while we pursue the spiritual disciplines of Bible reading and prayer and service and worship and all those things for the sake of our own souls. What good does it do if we try and instruct our children but we're not instructing our own hearts? And that's what he's saying here to these elders. What good is it going to be for you if you're trying to lead this church, but you're not concerned about your own soul? And the reality is you can get so busy doing ministry that you forget to minister to your own heart. So friends, God is more concerned about what you are in secret than what you are in public. And that means that elders must not think that they have arrived. They are still growing in their maturity. That is why Paul says to his younger Timothy, or younger pastor Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. 
persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Attend to yourselves, friends. That's the first charge. Secondly, care for God's flock. All right? So he says here, be careful to, uh, attention to yourself and to the flock, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, friends, don't miss the magnitude of these words. The church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. They scream to us, don't they, of Christ's love for the church. They scream to us sacrifice as he shed his sins while hanging on the cross. They scream to us of a, of a loving accomplishment that was made on our behalf by redeeming us blood. Jesus declared to his disciples, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He paid the ransom by his blood. His blood paid for our sins. And the writer of Hebrews drives this home when he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Friends, Jesus obtained the church of God with his own blood. And friends, that means that every believer here sitting here this morning who makes up God's church has been obtained by Christ as he hung on the cross. You were bought with his blood. So let's just let that sink in. So the believer who keeps calling and texting you of their problems, Jesus obtained them with his blood. That fellow Christian who always seems to rub you the wrong way, Jesus obtained him or her with his own blood. That cantankerous individual who just drives you crazy, Jesus obtained them with his blood. Look, there's all sorts of people within the body of Christ, right? And you may not like everyone in the sense of hang out and do all. Personalities sometimes clash and all that kind of stuff. But listen, Christ obtained them with his blood and they are precious to him. And he puts the burden and the responsibility of caring for all those people on the shoulders of elders of the church. So elders care for the flock. They're to watch over God's precious community identified here as this flock. So Paul is employing this image of elders now as shepherds who oversee and care for the flock of, uh, of sheep God has put under their care. The implications are numerous, aren't they? Nurturing the flock, guiding the flock, keeping watch over the flock, protecting the flock, looking for lost sheep that have slipped out of the, flock, the fold and tending to the wounds of the sheep. And friends, sometimes it can be hard. I don't know if you've seen, there was a, a video that was going around social media about a boy who finds a sheep that had fallen headfirst into a ditch. And he's, he's there pulling on the legs, and you can see him pulling and pulling. He's using all of his strength and his might to get this, this sheep out. And it's, it's just taking such a long time. But finally, it pops out, and he falls 
like, oh, I got the sheep out. This is great. Oh, and he looks over and the sheep jumps up and just kind of takes two steps and, and just kind of leaps and goes right back into the ditch. And oh, what a metaphor that is. But the sheep are bought with the blood of Jesus. And the elders are responsible even to care for that sheep who just keeps going back and back and back into the ditch. Friends, attend to yourselves. Care for God's flock. Third, watch for wolves. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves come in among you. Isn't it interesting? He says, I know this is going to happen. <laughs> False teaching is always just around the corner, friends. It's not far from us. And that's why the, the elders of a church have to keep watch. they got attention. So Paul knew what lay ahead, not specifically, but in reality, this was the, the challenge that was going to take place. He was leaving, and false teachers were going to take advantage of that. Now still, using this shepherd analogy, he warned ready for these fierce wolves and says that they'll speak twisted things. The word twisting has the idea of dislocating and twisting and confusing. And that is what happens when false teachers and their, and their false teaching. The truth is twisted to mean something other than it is intended to mean. The result is that sheep are confused and ultimately they are dislocated from the flock. And Paul's warning is that these fierce wolves will come from the outside, but they will rise up from within. That's hard to manage. But the reality is some false teaching will come from those within the church, those who have claimed to be orthodox. And so the elders don't just look outside. They also have to look within. Friends, this is why grounding the church in the whole counsel of God is critical to the health of the church. This is why ongoing discipleship and training and, and the, the, the teaching of doctrine is so important because sheep are so easily led astray. And often they will listen with itching ears to the teaching of the world. Why is the Scripture? So the elders who are care for the flock, but this is also the responsibility of parents. You are called to care for your children in that sense. To be watchful, to be alert, to listen to the ideas their children are picking up at school or from the kids they're spending. This is true whether your kids go to Christian school, or even homeschool. False teaching and false teachers abound, and much of it comes from their own peers. So as friends, or sorry, as parents, I should say, you cannot afford to check your shepherding of your children off at the door when you drop them off to school or wherever it might be. You've got to be engaged. You've got to be alert to what it is that they're reading and they're watching and they're hearing. That's the responsibility given to you. Attend to care for God's flock. Watch for wolves. Notice the fourth thing. Admonish with tears. He says, verse 31, Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with 
tears. Now, that word admonish might seem to you to have a harsh side to it. And certainly there is an aspect of, of that. You know, we don't say as elders, man, oh, I want to go admonish that person. No, 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 no. I'm going to go do it. No, no, no. I'm going to. No, no. We don't fight over those things. No one wants to, to be the admonisher, right? Um, yet at the same time, we're all called to admonish. Let's just think through what that word means. To admonish is the Greek word nutheteo, from which we get nuthetic counseling or biblical counseling. It has the idea of putting into the mind. So it has the idea of teaching, has the idea of instructing, right? It also has the idea of correcting the heart. So we want to correct the heart by putting stuff into the mind. We want to hear what it is that you're thinking, what you're saying, what your values are, what you're bowing down to and say, wait a second, this is not what says. This is not what Scripture means here. And so we need to lovingly correct, but also put the truth into the mind of the individual. That's the idea of admonish. And he's saying here, for you as elders, this is your responsibility, but you do it how? With tears. He's giving an example as a mechanism to say, this is what I want you to do. So Paul, in writing to the Colossian church, finishes the first chapter with these words, him, that's Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So you warn, you teach, you admonish. Why? The goal is maturity in Christ. And he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he within me. He's like, this is, this is where my energy goes. Admonished with tears, the elders label, labor and toil for the health and growth of every sheep so that they'll become mature in Christ. Finally, the fifth one, minister God's Word. It says, and now, and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all of those who are sanctified. All of what has been said has been done in and through the ministry of the Word of God in the context of the body of Christ, His flock. And those who are God's children, Paul is saying, are sanctified, are commended to God. In other words, they are entrusted to God. Here's the truth that Paul leaves them with. As elders, do your best with your calling to minister the Word of grace, and remember it is the Word that is and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. But also remember, it is always God who is in and among believers. It is He who is ultimately bringing about their growth and edification. It is He who will bring them to heaven, their inheritance. In other words, the future of the congregation belongs neither to the wolves nor with the shepherds, but with God. Isn't that what Paul reminds the Philippian church? And I am sure of this, that he, that's Christ, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, elders and shepherds have a responsibility to minister and to care for the flock and to, to 
sinful woman, to admonish with tears, to tend to themselves. But they are not somehow in and of themselves going to create maturity. It is God through His Spirit working through His Word in the lives of believers who have the Holy Spirit residing in them. That is the one who is growing them. We are simply the agents. We're the vehicles that God uses to accomplish that. As parents, you're the vehicles that God is using to do that into your children. My friends, at the end, this all comes to a close, isn't it? It's a wonderful picture. It's kind of like the end of the Lord of the Rings in one sense. Frodo's getting on that boat, if you remember that. It took like five minutes. By the time 30 minutes were done, it's like, Frodo, just get on the boat, would you? So slow. But here we have it. Verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. Obviously, they were not British. Being sorrowful, most of all, because the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Now just imagine this scene. Imagine having Paul there for plus years. Man who taught you, who instructed you, who built you up, who established you in the faith, the church wisdom to it all. He's your anchor. He's the one that points you to Christ. And he's leaving. While he's there or while he's reachable, he kind of feels safe. But when he's gone, the baton is passed to you. And you have to step up. And you have to live your life. And you have to leave your gospel legacy people that God brings under your care. It's a huge transition, isn't it? Wonderful picture here of the love of the leadership and the body of Christ working together for the health and the well-being of the church. This morning as I bring it to a close, I have a challenge and I have an encouragement. The challenge is very, very simple. Paul's words here are full of wonderful, helpful counsel and examples of what it means to live one's life for the gospel. And I want to challenge you individually at church corporately to live your lives for gospel legacy. That you are impacting people with your life. To live your life in such a way that you're laying foundation for the, the smooth transition as you pass the baton to the next generation. Whether that is leaving a legacy for your children and grandchildren or leaving a legacy for the next generation of the church. Live a gospel life so that you can leave a gospel legacy for the next generation to follow. Friends, that is a worthy pursuit. But I also want to encourage you, because I know that there are some of you who are here this morning and they're thinking to yourselves, I don't have much of a gospel life. In fact, my life has been anything but gospel for so long that my legacy is in tatters. And so I want to speak to you just for a few minutes as we close. 
You may have blown it time and time again, falling into sin, giving up on God in your faith, running hard after the world when you know better, falling prey to the Lord, but you're here this morning. There's still a race that God says that you're in. And as one of God's children, there's this thing called repentance that takes you to the place where you can acknowledge your sin before God, you confess it, you, uh, you seek to put off the old habits being renewed in the spirit of your mind. You put on the, the new Christ-like habits and behaviors and you get back into the race. You don't have to have three, four years of godly living to have a gospel legacy. A heart that is changed, a heart that is turned back to the Lord that says, yes, I did this and I was doing that and that was wrong and I treated you bad here. It was sin and I repent of it. But Jesus is now my Savior. He's the one I'm living for. That's a gospel foundation, even in the short term. I want to introduce you to a Japanese man by the name of Shizo. Kanakuri. He was a marathon runner for Japan in the, in the 1912 Stockholm Olympics in Sweden. Um, Japan at that point in time was really not too interested in the Olympics. He had to pay his own way. And he was able to make the journey, a tough journey from Japan to Stockholm. His coach got tuberculosis and when he arrived, he was struggling with stomach issues. And the day of the marathon, the, the weather was so hot and scorching that, in fact, a runner from Portugal died. And halfway through the race, suffering from the heat, he stopped at a house and he asked for a glass of water. And the people were so kind, they welcomed him in. And instead of water, they gave him raspberry juice and fruits and cinnamon rolls. And they pointed him to a couch where he could rest. And he lied down, and against his better judgment, he fell asleep. And when he woke up, it was the next morning. Now, Kanakuri was so ashamed that he did not notify the race officials and quietly returned to Japan. But in Sweden, he was mocked and made fun of, claiming that he had been running around the country for years in search of the finish line. And in 1967, when Kanakuri was 76 years old, Swedish officials invited him to return and finish the race, and he did. He went to the house, and he went back, and he continued to run the race. And when he finished the line, the time was now 54 years, 8 months, 6 days, 5 hours, 32 minutes, and 20.3 seconds. He finished the race. He was ashamed. He was embarrassed. And friends, there are lots of, there's lots of people who have darkened the doors of church who have been walking with the Lord who have fallen flat on their faces in the race of God who are ashamed, who are embarrassed. And as a church, we need to welcome them back to finish the race. 
The writer of the Hebrews says this, a classic passage, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is and of the throne of God. Run the race, friends, and seek to live a legacy. Lord, help us today. Help us to be humble before your word. And Lord, we realize that these words of Paul, but Lord, also breathed out by you for us. And so we recognize that these are inspired. These are your words. And they're your words that you want us to dwell on and to glean from. Lord, to live our lives for the gospel, being examples, having the right priorities, being people of integrity. But Lord, may we also fulfill our calling not only to live our lives for the gospel, but to live in such a way that we are leaving a gospel legacy. Lord, our church needs this. Our children need this. And you've called us, Lord, as imperfect as we are, to keep running the race, keep getting up when we fall, keep coming to you and being restored in our walk with you, but ultimately living with you as our goal, with you as our focus. Lord, would you take the weather vane of our hearts and refocus it to this pursuit of what it means to be one of your followers, wherever we may be, whatever our circumstances, whatever the troubles, whatever the sins that we may be struggling with, Lord, would you, would you draw us by your Spirit to come before you, to, to repent of our sin, to restore our relationship, and to focus our attention on this wonderful, beautiful race that you have for us. And may we live it through the gospel, and Lord, may we leave that gospel legacy for others to follow. Oh, Lord, we can do it in our strength, but Lord, we can't do it alone because it's nothing unless you are part of it. So we ask for your help now, Lord. In your precious holy name, amen.